It's story time, Alpaca Pals. So when I traveled to Australia, my Australian friends were determined to have me surf. They took me out to a beautiful beach, put me in a wetsuit, and handed me a very massive surfboard. I took one look at that ocean and I said, I can't do it. When they asked why, sharks. Okay, so surfing might not be the sport for me, but recently surf camps have erupted within the tourism industry as a retreat for women that teaches more than just the sport. They focus on women's empowerment. And this empowerment is extended beyond women who attend retreats. Women in Palestine, India, and Morocco have embraced surfing as a sport that allows them to challenge gender norms and fight the patriarchy. Today, we're chatting with Karam Masri. Hi, Karam. Hello. I met Karam years ago when we worked together as interns. I instantly liked her. She told me... You have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's honestly very true. She told me about a trip she'd taken to Central America to learn to surf. And that was the moment that I was like, this woman is too cool. So welcome. Thank you so much. What a lovely intro. I need you as my hype woman (laughs) at all times. I am by proxy. (laughs) But before we begin, I have a bone to pick with you, my alpaca pals. Y'all are too quiet. We want to hear from you. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your feelings. Send us a rant about something that pissed you off or something that made you happy. To do this, find us on Instagram and Twitter at at alpacamybagspod. Join our Facebook group, Alpaca Your Bags, or email us at hello at alpacamybags.ca. I can see the analytics, so I know how many of you are listening. It's about time you get in touch, okay? I'll be waiting. Like how slightly threatening that is. <laughs> I can see this. I love it. I see your IP address. <laughs> I know where you Don't live. leave that in there. That's too creepy, too creepy. <laughs> All right, Karam, tell us about yourself. Okay. Um, okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Karam, or Karam for you Arabic speakers out there. Um, I'm 29. I'm a triplet. I'm Palestinian. Oh, I always forget you always, honestly, you. I forget it too. <gasps> I have some friends who, like, a year into knowing them, discover I'm a triplet, and they're like, "How could you not tell me?" And I'm like, bro, honestly, I don't even think about it. I'm so sorry. Are um, your triplets as endearing and amazing as you are? Oh, my God. Thank you so much. No, they're worse. Because <laughs> I feel like it'd be like overload if I met all three of you at the same time. I'd just be overwhelmed. No, how amazing no, honestly, it would be. they're so lovely there. Um, I was the first one out from the three, um, although it was in quick succession, of course. <laughs> but I just feel like they're my babies. So they're lovely and beautiful. And we're all very different. But um, OK, yes, I'm a triplet. I'm um Palestinian I was but I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia and then Bahrain and Jordan before coming to Toronto 11 years ago for university um we met uh during my MBA um where I was specializing in media management and then I also did an MFA in film production so I'm kind of straddling now the career where I'm working in the business side of film but then also helping to be this uh spectacular film director one day 
Well, you already are. You oh. should tell everyone what your film is oh, and where really? they can watch it. Oh, well, it's about water, so it's kind of relevant. To it is very relevant. This episode. It's called um, Joha the Whale, and it's about um, a refugee, mother and daughter, coming from the Middle East and going through the refugee claimant process in Toronto. Yeah, it's a short film. It just showed at Toronto Palestine Film Festival, and it will be showing at... Um, in his town hall as part of the Toronto Arab Film screenings uh, this October 26th. And yeah. Oh, and I have a podcast. Shall I? Yeah, plug your podcast. <laughs> I'm being a complete um, like attention <laughs> hoe right now, but it's all good. <laughs> so I have a podcast with my wonderful friend, Sinelli, and it's called Brown Girls Talk Dirty. It's about uh, brown women or um, visible minorities of color talking about uh, their experiences with relationships, um, with sex and dating, and just all things that make them them. So, um, yeah, check us out. Okay, surfing. My first question for you, because we need to get this out of the way, it's really important. Were you ever afraid that there were sharks that were going to bite your legs <laughs> off? Um, that's such a good question. I feel like that would be the logical way to go about it for a normal person, but it didn't really enter my mind. Um, no. I, granted, the two surf camps that I went to um, weren't known for their shark populations. Mm. So when I went to Nicaragua, the beaches we were going to was just filled with jellyfish and not um, sharks. And then <laughs> you guys need to see Aaron's face right now. It's like a horrified <laughs> emoji. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, there was a lake in Nicaragua that had sharks in it, but not the beaches where we surfed. So it was all good. Oh. Just got stung so off you, by teeny tiny You picked fish. the safe places. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell us about your journey into surfing. Um, like, when were you first exposed to it? Where, how did you get this idea that, like, oh, I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to learn to surf? Um. I, I can start with the long existential intro and you guys can just cut and edit wherever you want, but I feel like it'll give you insight into who I am. So obviously born and raised in Saudi Arabia, a country that's not exactly known for its um, maybe leniency on, on women in terms of them swimming. Um, certainly swimming is not a activity you see a lot of women doing, but uh, my parents had me um, go into swimming competitively from the ages of four to 12. I was absolutely obsessed with it and loved it. And I actually won second place in all kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, when wow. I was like seven. So I was quite the baller. Um, but <laughs> around uh, puberty, my uh, lovely Muslim conservative parents, um, and I don't say this sarcastically, even though I know it comes out that way, but you know, we grew up in Saudi Arabia. They um, want to make sure they're abiding by their standards of uh, the religion. And so they decided, if you're going to continue swimming, you need to wear these atrociously long bike shorts under my swimsuit. And being a young teenager, being the only girl um, out of the guys and girls um, in, in this hideous um, Muslimified swimsuit was very embarrassing for me and I was subject to bullying so eventually it just kind of tapered off where I just said I didn't want to swim anymore my parents were like fine um, but I do know they regret that now talking about it because they just saw maybe how my life evolved through my teens like Erin I don't know if you knew me at my largest but I was um, I 
gained about 100 pounds throughout my teens and early 20s and then lost it. Um, And I've lost it only in about the past four years. So I'm kind of operating in the sense of um, oppression lasagna, kind of. And let me explain that. I had different layers where I'm like, I'm an Arabic person or a Palestinian, which is already, um, you know, a conflict enough. I'm a Muslim. I'm a woman. And then I'm a plus size person. And so going into surfing, which I got into in the past few years, it's a struggle, struggle lasagna getting into it, but it worked out well. And of course, I'm bringing up food. But I got into surfing because um, when I was doing my MFA in film school, I was doing a bunch of research and I saw an article about Sabah, who I believe you'll be talking about. Her dad was a fisherman and taught her surfing. And then I just was instantly obsessed since then and was just looking up all these other amazing women like Mariam El Gardoum in Morocco um, who were surfing. And so I was like, I'm going to do a documentary on Mariam. But then I was like, wait, can I actually go surfing myself? (laughs) And so I just Googled all these surf camps and then decided, okay, I'm going to go to this one in Nicaragua first um, because I had a business school trip kind of nearby in Chile and Peru. So I was like, after I'm just going to go by myself and do this. And then about a year and a half later, I went to a surf camp in Morocco and met Miriam. You met her? Oh, my God. I had the worst fangirl moment because it wasn't like I planned it and met up with her. Um, it, it was more just like I was at the beach getting ready to go surfing. And I see her and I scream and I run <laughs> up to her and then just kind of stare at her in the face. And she's looking at me like, who, who are you? And then I about I was like, no, I'm going to act chill. After I just screamed in her face. And I kind of like gave her a friendly punch to the shoulder, which is so. <laughs> uh, do not ever do that to anybody, ever. I, I punched her and then I was like, hey, oh my God, I'm your biggest fan. And she's like, okay, thanks. And then I punched her again. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm so sorry, but I love you. And then we were chatting eventually, but I just made a complete ass of myself. But yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> We need to tell them who Miriam is so they understand the yes, context. Definitely. Oh my God. I just went right into it. <laughs> she is one of Morocco's top surfers, um, top female surfers to be specific. That's right. And I believe she's 20 now, but she's been making, um, oh my God, I'm just going to came up with a hideous pun. She's been making waves for the past <laughs> few years as being one of the few female Muslim surfers out there who's actually at a world championship level um and my god she's only 20 and um she's just doing an amazing job i do know that she's still kind of seeking corporate sponsorship because she has to pay out of pocket to attend all these surf qualifying championships and everything and her parents have to pay for it um and she doesn't have the same kind of privilege as western surfers who have that access to you know like roxy and other corporate sponsorships Mm. where they can pay for it okay so i have a couple questions yes about the story that you've just told us Mm -hmm. about your journey into surfing. Um, I'm curious when you decided to stop swimming at the time, because you were saying you you think that your parents might regret that now. At the time, do you think that they, or maybe they talked about this with you, did they realize why you were stopping? Like, did they make the connection between, like, the pants that they were making you wear and stopping? I don't think they linked it together. I think it was just kind of a combination of things. It's not like they said, you're going to wear these shorts. And then I turned around and said, I want to quit swimming. So 
I think to them it was keep in mind they also had five kids so I was triplets and then two mm-hmm. older siblings yeah um and they just saw that um I was continuing swimming but then eventually I was showing that I lost interest and um I said I didn't want to do it and I think it was getting to the point where I was reaching puberty and they were thinking more and more about well how do we operate around having our Muslim daughter swim and so they just said okay uh you don't have to swim anymore but I don't think they made that link with it being because I had to wear the bike shorts because to be fair it wasn't just the bike shorts but it was more about like my peers reaction to the bike shorts mm-hmm. the bike shorts mm-hmm. themselves weren't a problem other than giving me a horrific tan um <laughs> but like a farmer's tan on my legs was just so ugly <laughs> I'm just I'm so mad anyways um and then they kind of slowly came to that realization after you know a few years had passed and I put on a little weight and um, kind of lost the kind of, it wasn't just about weight. It was just that it was truly my passion. Like I was like a dolphin. I loved water. I just loved swimming. And um, I always thought it wasn't going to be there for me anymore until the whole surfing thing manifested itself. Um, and yeah, like realizing that I'm operating in this kind of sense of severed belonging. There's all these ties to these communities that I think I can be a part of or thrive in, but these things are in place that are stopping me, whether it's myself holding myself back or other elements, whether they're cultural or societal or emotional. And um, I think I'm slowly trying to find my way through it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And this was the next question I had for you. Like, it seems like this swimming that you did as a child led you to surfing in a way where like you were attracted to it because of your love of water and that childhood experience of like, putting your energy into something like wholeheartedly yeah and then I think it um I don't know if this makes sense but I think I I like surfing and swimming beyond anything else whether it's my other passions which is like filming and art and whatever um there's just something about the feeling of surfing and getting on that board where it's just you and you're kind of the closest you'll ever be to flying and it sounds so cheesy but I swear to god when you feel it it is just stunning. Like, who needs a man when you have that perfect wave? I'm so serious. <laughs> it's just so beautiful to me. And it is, like, really powerful because I didn't just jump into these um, surf camps. I didn't just buy a ticket and decide to go. I It was calculated. I knew six months in advance I worked in a very rigorous prep with my trainer in a pool with weights to ensure that I'm getting the most out of it because at the end of the day, it's only a week long mm-hmm. and you, granted you're doing six hours a day for seven days straight but you're not gonna excel as a surfer even within that space like you have to be someone who is doing it every day all the time for years so yeah so what was the experience like in terms of learning like do they put you in the water the very first day oh yeah you will just be thrown right into it um I wasn't the most graceful person and I don't mean like just physically I mean like um like I was a complete fucking brat um the first day in Nicaragua just because they they like surfers they will um go and try to get that wave no matter what the circumstances so um rain or shine unless it affects the wave uh, but also like the first beach we went to like they hand you a board they figure out the measurements so obviously i'm a long board because i'm a heavier girl and so they need to balance that out with buoyancy and all that good stuff 
they kind of take you through the various techniques and how to read the waves and they just go, okay, you're going to go straight into the surf. Um, and we're walking down and it's like 30 feet of really sharp rocks that you're walking on in your bare feet. And these surfers have like calloused feet because they've been on rocks and beaches forever. are just kind of walking through with all these boards stacked on their heads. And I have this big, heavy 11 foot board stacked on my head. <laughs> And I'm just bitching and moaning, <laughs> slinging through this minefield of rocks. <laughs> but once we got there, you don't really know how powerful the ocean is until you really get in there. It's it's incredibly um, powerful. Like I got swept away at, like within the very first day, and it was kind of terrifying. But it's amazing. Once you kind of, the waves kind of work on a timing so you can eventually get used to reading them. Right. And then once that break happens, then you paddle as hard as you can to try to get out there. Yeah. I was going to say, because I have boogie boarded. I don't know if I told you this, oh my but God, I'm you're really so good at boogie boarding. <laughs> <laughs> I did in Australia. I did in India. It was amazing. But um, it's really hard. And I did realize like in just playing around with a boogie board, I feel so stupid saying that. No, man, that is hard. <laughs> and I am proud of you. Don't hate on the boogie board. It is about timing, though, like uh, getting the wave at the right moment. And what I remember about it is if you catch the wave at the right moment, it is the most incredible feeling of like speed and just like power but if you don't catch it it's awful and the thing is it's (laughs) there's water up your nose like you're scared you'll never breathe again like it's it's hard (laughs) and no there's so many things in place whether another surfer is going to drop in on the wave and smack you with their board oh yeah whether you're going to smack yourself with your own board whether you're going to land somewhere where there's like a patchy area of rocks or coral hoping that there's not going to be a big jellyfish that's stung you on the face which is what happened to me (laughs) There's many elements at play, but you're right. Like, when you do get that wave, which is infrequent, but when you do, it's so fucking amazing. So, and that's why it's worth it. I think they're all just kind of chasing that high. Mm, yeah. And I guess, like, the element of risk also makes the high feel even higher. Yeah, but I do have to say, I found that surfing is am- is amazing in the way that when you do mess up, you still land in water. It's not like skateboarding where you will be landing on concrete. Mm. So as overwhelming as the water is, um, you're not doing it at that kind of pro surf level where it's like an 11 foot wave and you're going to be held down for about two waves or something. You're still going to get up right after. Right. Um, so yeah, it's. I, I almost feel like I, I feel comforted by the fact that even when I fall, it won't hurt. relatively did you ever see the movie blue crush of course (laughs) because that's what i'm imagining like being oh my god underwater girl girl, we're just in the whitewash or even in the green which is just right past where the waves break it is nowhere near that and we're in baby waves too okay Okay. so my other question i wish i was that cool also a reference to blue crush they don't make you do the thing where you stand like on the beach with the surfboard and you have to hop up on it oh yes absolutely so that's the part where they'll show you the technique and show you like the center of balance and whether they find out you're like goofy or the other way around so typically um the the most i would say normal stance you see is a left foot forward right foot back mm. goofy is the opposite one so right foot forward and left foot back um so they figure it out based on just you jumping up and seeing where you nat- naturally your feet land and then they just show you how to do that um 
hop up because or pop up sorry um I call it the hop up because I'm hip like that (laughs) but yeah the pop-up is always the hardest part because no matter how you get the kind of gist of it on sand it's a whole other ballpark on water Mm. because you are pedaling like crazy and then you're always looking behind you and then you have to pop up at the exact right moment Tell us a bit about the camp experience. Was it a women-only camp? I feel like you told me it was. So I specifically sought out women-only camps for my two experiences. So it was both in Nicaragua and Morocco. So Nicaragua is Chica Brava Surf Camp. And um, that is actually a camp that's fully all for women. I focused on all-female surf camps because I just feel more comfortable I think it's during my upbringing and the fact that I obviously still have my own securities, I would just rather not have to focus on, you know, how I look like or interacting with men. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they are, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. I was going to be like, I hate them. They're the like inferior <laughs> species, but you'll cut that out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just don't want to get Maybe distracted. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so for, for Nicaragua, it was... Uh, a camp that was specifically all women but when i went to morocco um in surf Morocco, that's a camp that is mixed but you get to choose based on the teacher or program if it's the all girls program mm-hmm. or if like let's just say you're a couple you choose uh, the teacher that caters to like a group with couples in it or whatever so i specifically chose the instructor uh, named fatima who's this amazing spanish muslim uh surf instructor and it was a girl's group okay and can you speak to like how it empowered you but not just in the act of like learning something new like how did it empower you as a woman and in your experience of life and experience of your body like what what did it do for you like on a broader sense yeah no that's a great question especially because I was always the biggest girl there um and not just that but I was always the only woman of color there in terms of the surfers because when I was in Nicaragua it was all U.S. um, based women coming in and my group it was definitely all white women Um, and then same thing with Morocco when I went there it was all British women Mm. um, or from other areas of Western Europe so yeah I was kind of battling a bit of a harder issue where it was I'm the only plus size surfer and I, I truly mean the whole camp, not just like my specific group, especially in the in the one in Morocco where it was couples and stuff. And then also clearly being someone who wasn't white, but it was empowering because I find in surfing culture, it's not just a sport. There's a sense of community. Like they really do care about the ocean and the sense of like collectively um, being in the water together, there's this whole kind of sense of etiquette of dropping into waves and making sure everybody kind of gets their turn. Um, and so I didn't really experience the usual hangups I do in my day-to-day life. I kind of went in there being like, okay, nobody knows me, so I can kind of be whoever I want to be and not really give a shit about that. And you also just pay a ton of money <laughs> to do these surf camps, so I'm not going to waste my time worrying about how I look like or... Um, you know, if I get along with everybody. Thankfully, though, everyone's just awesome. So I had no problem with that. But um, you kind of go into it just being like, I'm here to experience this and and just not let the usual day-to-day crap back home 
get in the way there. Mm-hmm. And it was great. And you do feel super strong. Like you're incredibly sore constantly, but it's a nice sore. Like, you know, you're going to be really built when you get back. So it was great. <laughs> so it's therapeutic for your body and your mind. A hundred percent. Um, how did and your stomach? Sorry. <laughs> the food is fantastic. They take care of all your meals. Oh my God. Especially in Morocco. It was like tagine every night. Oh. It was so good. <laughs> Mint tea. Mm. Yes. How did your friends and family react when you said, I'm going to go surf? So I think with the very first surf camp, it was pretty much no response. <laughs> At least maybe from my family because um, they knew I was gone for the three weeks prior to the surf camp in Chile and Peru for like a business trip. Um, so they just knew I'd be gone for a month. And it was just like, I, I went away and then I came back. It wasn't like um, you went to the specific surf camp. Yeah. And what did you do there? It was just kind of like, yeah. oh, welcome back. How was your trip? Right. All good. Great. Okay. Um, the one with Morocco was a bit more specific because I flew to Morocco, did it for a week, flew back to Toronto for one week, and then flew back to the Middle East for my brother's wedding. <laughs> so I was jet lagged like no other. Um, that was a bit different. And it was... but. I don't know. It's kind of a stereotypical Arabic family where it wasn't like, how was the surf camp? What did you do? It was more like, oh, you look really, really tan now for your brother's wedding, but you also look like you lost weight. So that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I see your faces. It's fine. It's normal. It's okay. I recently looked at photos of Lucas and I when we were in India and we had been there for like two months and the food is amazing but you puke a lot and you shit your pants a lot oh my god deli belly is that a real thing for like two months straight oh my god and when you're in it you don't realize how skinny you are and I looked at the pictures and both of us were like we look sickly like I cannot believe that was us We always shit ourselves. That's fine. It's all about shitting yourself. <laughs> Have you truly what, traveled poops. if you haven't shit yourself? <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of, we went to this really remote um, beach on, I think, my second to last day in Morocco. And, girl, I had to shit my pants and there was no bathroom nearby. <laughs> so you went in the woods, right? No. I basically, by sheer force of will, reabsorbed it back into my body. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. <laughs> I, th- I saw God. <laughs> it was like, Allah, I know you're out there now. <laughs> he really came through for me. He really came through for me, that one. <laughs> and not to mention, a wetsuit is really hard to get off. A, when you're plus sized. And B, when yeah. you have to shit. So yeah. I'm glad I didn't have to deal with that. That's Just wear sick. a diaper at all times. When you do yeah. Yeah. Except when you surf, because that stuff will swell. Not that I know. I just have a baby niece. I see how it reacts in water. The story of surfing and empowerment extends beyond the surf retreats that have become popular for North American women. In other parts of the world, surfing has become an expression of opposition to patriarchy. Women are using surfing to prove that they are every bit as capable and badass as the men that have dominated the sport. I heard about this phenomenon first via an article that covered a young surfer in the occupied territory of Gaza. 
At five years old, Saba Abu Ghanim. You did good, girl. You don't need my help. <laughs> was taught by her father how to surf. Many families where Saba grew up, including her own, have traditional ideas about women's roles. As Saba was maturing, surfing would no longer be appropriate. I was struck by this particular quote. Saba says she doesn't want to grow up. She dreams of teaching other girls to surf, but she acknowledges that it's probably impossible since soon she'll be a wife moving into her mother-in-law's house, still in Gaza, but inland. So, Kram, I wanted to mention this because there, I see parallels here. Um, what you were talking about in terms of like societal expectations of women, especially when they hit puberty. Can you speak to what that experience is like and like how the way society views you changes? Yeah, I do have to point out, though, that even though if since you talked about Sabah, um, we're both obviously Palestinian, but she is in a much more conservative society in Gaza, which is basically an open air prison. Um, and so the conservatism there and then also like, the social and economic things that she's going through is much different than mine. Obviously I'm much more privileged and kind of had the luxury to be able to decide um, ultimately whether I can go back into surfing or not. So with me, um, and sorry, what was the question more about like the challenge of the cultural background? Yeah. Like I'm curious about how, because here it's, they're saying like she had to quit because her role in society was changing. She yeah. was maturing and becoming a woman, and that meant that she couldn't do certain yeah, things anymore. Yeah, it wasn't anymore. appropriate, especially to swim. So in the Middle East, I would say, obviously, like um, considering how Western some of the cities are, it may be okay now, but most most often swimming is not something acceptable for women because the things attached to the idea of swimming is usually something that will oppose the religion or conservative religion. So that's wearing skin tight clothing, wearing something revealing. Um, and then the associations associations with that, whether it's, um, Oh, if you're surfing or you're swimming, that means you're going to be showing off your body to men, which will lead to meeting men, which will lead to possibly and or drinking alcohol, which is forbidden. Um, and so I know that Miriam El when she surfs and something I talked to her about um she says the moroccan men they they give her a harder time than they they would never approach the british woman coming in for the surf camp so it was just her being like you need to cover yourself up this is not appropriate because they associated surfing with um drinking and doing haram things like being with um men and i found i kind of got the sense of that from the local people, not because I'm Moroccan, but because maybe they assumed I was because I did speak Arabic. Mm. Um, and I was the only visible minority of color in that group of girls. The rest were clearly white, blonde, uh, either Europeans or U.S. in, in Nicaragua. Um, and so, like, I this it's not anything new to me. But, yeah, just back to your question, it's, um, I think, operating under <laughs> certain class structures really does determine the ability to be able to do it so in those surf camps I can freely do it and not have any repercussions especially in my personal family um granted though if I had photos up and let's just say I surfed in a bikini top which I didn't I always had full-length wetsuits because there's nothing worse than having like a tit pop out when you're trying to surf but miraculously (laughs) these girls just would do it and would not have any any boobs flop out it was incredible um, 
but I would certainly not be able to post photos of that on my social media and have my parents see that mm-hmm. because that would be deeply um, offensive to them. And then also they would worry about what other people would think because mm-hmm. ultimately they do want me to get married. I'm 29, which is approaching spinster age, according to my mother. <laughs> and she can't exactly market her daughter on Facebook if her daughter has bikini photos up. So certainly it's something I have to be aware of, hyper aware of. Um and I know ultimately if I move somewhere where I can then surf every day, I'll have to deal with more and more of these considerations where I'm hiding parts of my life. But I am kind of hiding parts of my life now, mm. especially with the, you know, my podcast on brown girls and sexual experiences. So I think sometimes as a Muslim girl or Arabic girl in the West, it, this is very much the norm. So, right. And I guess for someone like Saba, like because she is still living in Gaza, like she doesn't have the ability to even hide parts of her life. It's not like she could be like, oh, I'm going to sneak out and surf every now and then, like leave my mother-in-law's home. Exactly. It's it's a complete luxury because especially in Gaza, like it's um, a very small city that's extremely overpopulated. And it's not like she has the independence or the financial means um, to be on her own and then surf. I mean, I believe the Israelis only allow Gazans about three nautical miles to access the beach. So it's a very, very small amount of ocean that you can access. So if she goes out there on her own, they will see it. Not to mention, if you saw Gaza Surf Club that came out in TIFF about a couple years ago, when they did finally got her to go back into the water, she wasn't surfing. Um, She just had like a full-on abaya or dress and was just kind of like dog paddling out in the ocean. Um, and the act of even swimming for her was a big deal because it had been years since she did it, mm. since she had gotten hit puberty and then couldn't surf anymore. So it, it's absolutely impossible to do that in Gaza. Yeah. But that comes with a whole bunch of like political um, uh, issues and access issues that I am fortunate enough not to experience as a Palestinian immigrant. So This might sound like a stupid question, but it's hard for me, and it's probably because of like my Western upbringing, but it's hard for me to figure out like how can you one day take your child surfing and it's totally okay, but then one day she turns 13 and suddenly it's not. It's really weird. Like, I don't know how you could do that because it's your daughter. It's the same person. Like, What has changed about her yeah. that she suddenly doesn't have the right to do this anymore? So when I read about these articles and then read about her dad, who's actually considered very, um, I think, radical and westernized or um, maybe not westernized, but just very subversive in the way that he encouraged his daughter to swim and everything in Gaza, um, much like in the way my parents let me be a competitive swimmer until I hit puberty, I can see some parallels there. And it's maybe not because I don't. I feel like the onus really isn't on him. And so the phrasing of your question, I would then turn it to the society in which they're operating in, because let's just say he did continue to allow his daughter to surf. It would only end up harming her because the area in which she's in isn't going to allow her to do it um, in a way that would be safe or enjoyable for her anymore. Um, I think much like in the same way, my parents were trying to protect me from what they thought would be... um, maybe 
town gossip or judgment from other Muslim families or my future prospects to meeting um, what they consider a proper Muslim man. I don't know. There could be many things. I don't think I've ever had an opportunity to discuss it with them. I just remember sometimes um, my mom in like the past year would just flippantly kind of like randomly uh, mention, oh, you know, we sh- I should have never made you stop swimming. And yeah. so I, I'd hear that. And then I guess I um, wouldn't elaborate on it. I think it's just because I know. And, and I- I'm just finding my own way around it now. And there's no point to open that wound. Mm-hmm. But it's also different times now. Like in just a decade, things change really quickly. And so maybe now, like for your mom, it's like she sees the world around us right now. And also she's in Canada a lot of the time. So maybe today it feels like, oh, I probably could have let her continue to swim. But in that moment, 100%. it probably felt very different. I agree. And because um, I was the only Arabic girl in that in the surf uh, sorry, not surf team, the swim team mm-hmm. um, back home in Saudi. The rest were just kind of um, expats. So it was a lot of American boys and girls in the team and then me. And so they were like, well, I inadvertently became the representation of a Muslim girl in the swim team. And I must behave appropriately in this new space. Um, so, you know, you are engaging in quote unquote Western activities, but you're doing it in your like halal way the right. Muslim proper Muslim way and so they're obviously doing their best but there's things that they don't factor coming in like peer bullying um and horrific tan lines <laughs> 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 that was a minor issue but it pissed me off to no end <laughs> um there's another surfer I wanted to mention um and I'm just, I'm so amazed by her story. It's incredible. Her name is Ishita Malavia. In 2019, she was named on Forbes 30 Under 30 in Asia for her work in establishing the Shaka Surf Club. This club teaches children how to surf for free. Her surf community has also run a beach cleanup that upcycled plastic waste into a bench, aided the construction of pit toilets, and even gathered volunteers to repaint the local school and save it from shutting down due to low admissions. She has also worked to raise funds to send some of the kids with financial difficulties to college and is currently in the process of starting computer workshops at the school. Um, And she's just a badass ski... uh, not skier she's just a badass surfer um have you heard anything about her yeah absolutely actually i um uh i guess because of my the privileges of my work i know an ontario producer who actually just shot an entire documentary feature with her in it no and she sent me the rough cut to just look at because she knows i'm obsessed about surfing so oh. i can't wait to read it but honestly they're, they're all amazing there's also sembe khadija who you may not have heard of she's senegal's first female surfer and um I'm in these community groups like there's Brown Girl Surf, which is Brown Girl Surfers all over the world or in it on Facebook um, being connected. But then there's also Black Girl Surf, which is um, originated in California. So the organizers are there and they teach black women how to surf. But they've been bringing Sambe over um, so that she can train with their trainers and they're really supporting her, which I think is incredible. But there's only so much they can do and i do know recently there was a um the international surf association holds these kind of uh championship qualifying competitions in different countries and senegal sent their male surfers over to japan but didn't send sambe or any of the other female ones um which is a complete 
just I don't even know how the word for it. It's so unfair. It's so unfair because somebody's absolutely amazing and has demonstrated that she could probably easily win the competition, but they didn't fund her trip. And so Black Girls Surf and some of the other surf communities, especially Brown Girls Surf, but especially Black Girls Surf, sorry, um, worked on like fundraising and getting her tickets. But somebody was like, no, I don't want you to fundraise for me because the other women won't be able to go. And it's, it's more about like an internal issue where they need to support all of us. Uh, which is incredible. She's just an amazing woman. So I hope, I hope they all get that access one day. Yeah, because it really points to systemic problems. Mm-hmm. And I can understand her viewpoint that like taking funding just points to the fact that her own community isn't willing to support her. Exactly. Which is sad. Um, but it also seems clear that in countries with traditional views of gender, where women are subject to inequality, Surfing seems to be emerging as an expression of like maybe freedom or protest, but maybe part of me is also like, oh, it could just be that it's this thing that like separates them. They can like leave the solid ground and go out into the ocean and just be on their own for a bit. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I, I'm, I'm nothing special because I, I do, I do need to make make it a point. There are a lot of surf camps cropping up across the Middle East that are. Like um, adding to this movement, and I think they're really helping us out there, or other women like me out there who want to surf but don't really know how to go about it. And um, they're they're kind of like verified real surf schools that you can go to and learn surfing. And so my next one I'm hoping is to go to Oman because there is a surf camp there, and of course a lot of Arabic women um, in the surrounding areas go to uh, will go to Muscat or Muscat um, to do the surf camps there. And I just think it's beautiful that maybe hopefully this time I'll be in a surf camp with other Arabic Muslim women. Yeah. So I'm very excited at the prospect of that. So you called it a movement. Do you think it's a movement? Because, I mean, this is just like from my own personal observation, but I have noticed especially since meeting you, that like this is a thing. I see more and more articles about women who are really finding empowerment through surfing. And I've definitely noticed that like, especially in places where women have less um, access to, what am I saying? I think I know what you mean. It's more just like um, being able to to ride these opportunities where they wouldn't have able to do it before, which are really tools of empowerment and that demonstrate their strength and athleticism. Um, but I do have to say, surfing really is a privilege even for these women in third world countries. So like Mary Malgardum in Morocco, she herself acknowledges that she's lucky that she's able to surf because surfing is expensive. You need to be able to afford a board. You need to be able to afford a wetsuit. Um, and so a lot of women who would love to serve in these um, countries and are, let's just say, are able to or the parents support them. Even then, there's like barriers of access because you need a board and you need someone to teach, you need a wetsuit. So, um, sorry, I just kind of went on a tangent here. But yeah, there is certainly, I see a movement, maybe an unofficial movement, but there's a lot of women, brown women, black women, women from third world countries, uh, minority women who are... Um, taking on surfing and or skateboarding and things that are considered maybe western male dominated sports and and making it into their own in their own way um and 
it's just so fucking badass yeah do you think it has an impact like on the way that their um prospective cultures and societies view maybe not just them but women in general do you think that there's potential for this to create progress i'd like to think in every every way whether it's like one person or three people or a group of people getting together to go surfing it does make an impact um like you mentioned earlier that um that indian surfer sorry i forgot her name what's her name i am terrible because i just saw that documentary on her and ishita so um Ishida's doing these uh, this kind of community meetup where they're clearing up the oceans and picking up trash. And actually, every single surf camp that I went to have these initiatives in place. So it's not just, um, you know, women going out to just surf. They're also helping the community itself. And so I think if they're not able to convince the community of supporting their surfing, I think through the act of cleaning up the community and doing these initiatives, which ultimately help them, can then shape their perspective or acceptance of it um i do find when you not only add that layer of culture but then you add that layer of a conservative religion that does make it a bit harder but i think slowly but surely hopefully things will be changing and it'll be a bit more accessible mm-hmm. well it sounds like there should be surfing in my future. I need to get over my fear of sharks. Yo, come with me. Well, the goal is you just go somewhere where there's not sharks. You're cool with jellyfish, right? Uh. <laughs> it's okay. There were tiny baby jellyfish. It was I like just, little mosquito bites. Things from the sea really freak me out. I know. But oh, they're so beautiful. No, they're not. <laughs> they are. They're, they're evil little jelly little buggers. That, Say, they're not any worse than what we encounter here. Like, you know, cockroaches and centipedes. Yeah, they're they are because shapes. they attack you. <laughs> I've had a crow attack me once and I'm just innocently walking down the street. So I'm cool with the ocean, man. As long as it's not populated by sharks. Well, Cran, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you. I'm so honored, especially because I'm really no surf expert. I'm just a beginner who went to a couple camps. But Well, that's amazing. It. And I appreciate you sharing your experience because it's important to hear from different people about the things that empower them. You are more than welcome. And honestly, the biggest gift I got out of all of it is just meeting other amazing badass women. And I'll share photos with you um, of the cool the cool phenomenal people i met on these trips oh please do it's just great yeah i mean i can actually really like in the experience i've talked a little bit about how when i was a solo traveler i would stay in hostels a lot and i would stay in women only dorms and i had similar experiences where like i would connect with women who were doing the same thing i was doing who had the same fears and sometimes insecurities that i had in being alone women traveling because like when you're doing that everyone asks you oh like isn't that dangerous you should be taking better care of yourself you get a lot of like unnecessary judgment as a solo female traveler yeah um and i found that staying in women-only dorms especially was like a safe space to connect with other women who understood the experience but also knew that there was empowerment to be had because it truly was empowering for me to challenge myself in that way. Yeah, and it's not like you're just bumping into random women in the streets. Like, you're all in kind of a similar situation. Um, and whatever drew you there, I think, allows you to connect with them over 
things and just women are awesome and should rule the world basically mm-hmm, i agree well this podcast is produced by katie lore and written and hosted by me aaron hines um i'm gonna pick that bone once again my alpaca pals you're too quiet okay we want to hear from you tell us your thoughts your feelings send us a rant you know the drill to do this, find us on Instagram and Twitter at, at @alpacamybagspod. You can join our Facebook group. It's called Alpaca Your Bags. It's really fun. You should join it. We share lots of really cool content. There's good conversations happening. It's all around a great space. You can also email us at hello at, at alpacamybags.ca. If you dig us, please review the podcast and remember to subscribe while you're at it and tune in every other Wednesday for more episodes. I hope you all get to alpaca your bag soon. Until next time.